Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Waters Wavelength podcast. Uh, my name is Anthony Maliki and I'm the U.S. editor of Waters. And I know we keep on telling you that Dandy Francesco is leaving, but he's going to join us for one more podcast. And there's a reason why. First of all, say hi, Dan. I'm back. I'm back. You thought you got rid of me, but I'm back. One more time here. For one, one for the road. And uh, his swan song will be with uh, Neil Pawar, who is the chief technology officer of AQR. Neil, thanks for being here today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I believe that Neil was your first cover story that you wrote. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So Neil was my first cover story uh, back in December of 2014. Uh, we had to sit down and it was for the January 2015 cover. Um, you know, and I said in my kind of my, the last podcast we recorded a couple weeks ago, one of my favorite stories, Neil's, a, a, you know, a very interesting guy, as you'll hear in this podcast, and we're uh, happy he joined us. All right. Well, so, Neil, I guess to start off with, you know, we, when we were kind of kicking around ideas, uh, you and Dan were kicking around ideas, um, the idea around talent, and it's something that, you know, comes up a lot. Any conference that we have, it's always inevitably going to be, uh, you know, people lament the challenges around it. So, the broad theme of this conversation will be around talent, but then we're going to kind of break into uh, three three areas of, about acquiring talent, uh, how open source, how you're using open source to develop your team and to bring in new uh, people, and then kind of the organizational model itself and kind of some of the changes that you're seeing mm -hmm. in that. Um, maybe just to start off with, though, why don't you tell us maybe a little bit about the structure that you have with your team at AQR? Yeah, sure. Uh, well. First of all, in terms of talent, I would say you know that uh, there is obviously a lot of competition, and we've seen that increase over the last five or ten years as the tech companies have spread their wings out in New York and, and have been picking people off of banks and places. So there's a lot of a lot of um, you know companies searching for engineers, and we're obviously one of them. We've been growing a lot over the last few years, and I think that you know one of the um, you know, a couple of things that we've been doing that are really important and helpful for us. First of all, uh, you know, internships on campus. So we're we're present on a number of campuses, uh, most notably recently, at least uh, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, RPI, University of Maryland. Um, you know, and we're out there bringing sophomores, juniors, seniors back for uh, you know for summer internships, and we find that the return rate of summer interns is very high. So they when they experience what it is that we do. Um, you know, there's a very high probability they're going to want to come back and do that. So that's been a really good engagement for us. Just by wonder, you know, to that point on the, the college campus, when you're going about it, you know, because one of the things we hear is like, especially with college kids, they're like, I don't see myself working at, working and fine with working at a hedge fund, something like that. Where, where's the common pushback that you're kind of seeing on that? And then how do you kind of win them over? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I would say that when we're on campus, the we're not really representing AQR, we're representing the financial industry. And the questions we get are often less about our firm in particular and why should we work in this industry? And you know, let's be honest, our industry hasn't necessarily had uh, it's been the best poster child for a place <laughs> to work over the last decade. And so, you know, it really takes, you know, some explaining for people to understand the position that we're in today. And, and put briefly, I would say the most exciting part about the financial industry today is the disruptive nature of what fintech is starting to offer us. And if you look at particularly the larger financial establishments over the last 20, 25 years, we know that they've gone through these cycles of you know, mergers and acquisitions and, and growth. And having been at uh, a large bank in the early mid-90s uh, that went through a number of uh, mergers over that period, I can tell you that, that in, in almost all cases, the mergers weren't fully completed. Uh, 
So for example, if you had two banks that were merging together and they both had interest rate derivative trading platforms, then in theory you would say, well, platform A is stronger than platform B, let's consolidate all of our trades, positions, risk on one platform. And we would move down that direction. Inevitably, there's always some feature or desk that, that's a holdout, and at the time, the decision would be, all right, well, we'll, we'll keep both systems and we'll, we'll get around to retiring system B later. Well, later never happened. And then by the time 08 happened and budgets started to shrink in technology departments, especially at large organizations, uh, the investment that one would need to make to, to collapse those, well, nobody had the appetite to do that anymore. And so the complexity of systems and the pipes between front and back in a lot of these firms is tremendous. The budget is, is getting tighter every year. And I think we're heading to the point where some of the fintech uh, startups and ideas are gonna just disrupt these, these legacy systems entirely. And you'll start to see more of a leapfrog effect where banks will just discard entire processes and, and underlying technology of a business and move to some of the newer technologies that are being developed. It's not happened wholesale yet, but you can see just from the amount of uh, involvement all the financial industry has in fintech, the accelerators, the incubators, the funding, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, everyone's staying close to it, and, and that's starting to really change the shape of the industry. And I think when people coming out of school today see that and see how disruptive that can be, it, it starts to make finance a much more interesting uh, venue. Mm -hmm. What, in, t in terms of, you know, for all of our college listeners out there, which I'm sure there are zero, but more likely for the <laughs> fathers and mothers that are trying to get their kids <laughs> jobs, what specifically is AQR looking for in a young technologist right out of college? I know, you know, you come from an interesting background having, you know, did, done a lot of acting work, you know, being a, a double major for a, a time at, at Brown. So what, is there something specific you're looking for in these young technologists? Is there a mold? Is it kind of different across the board? Yeah, well, we, we don't require um, undergraduate degrees in theater, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's good. Noted. That's good, but uh, yeah, I look, I mean, I think for the most part, we, you know, uh, we want people that, that love programming. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of coding work to be done, uh, so we're excited about people that really enjoy writing code and designing systems. And I think for us, uh, you know, the other, the other thing is that because of our scale, and we're not, you know, I, and by that I mean we're a fairly small company. You know, we have a couple hundred engineers uh, within AQR. And so the opportunity for people coming in is really to see the sort of cradle to grave, um, you know, life cycle of a piece of software. And so you're, you're involved in, in designing it and building it, in releasing it, in supporting it. And, and if you stay with a company long enough, in retiring it as well. And that's very distinct from the opportunities at some of the larger tech firms, for example, where, you know, just given their scale, you might be working on a particular menu item or a subsection of a, of a system. And here, you really get to see the whole sort of soup to nuts uh, of the software development process. And so we're looking for people, you know, who are curious more than anything else. Um, and, and clearly, there has to be some interest in finance. I mean, if you really dislike finance <laughs> or you find it uninteresting, then working for a, for a buy side, uh, you know, asset manager is probably not the right place for you. Uh, but but there's so definitely an interest in finance. But even within that, you know, the range of roles that, that we have at our organization, I think this is true of most places, you know, there's roles that are very sort of research, portfolio management, quanti sort of centric, where clearly there, 
people people are working very very closely with with quantitative you know uh, mathematicians and analysts, and and so the level of interaction and understanding of finance is much more. But if you look down the stack, we need um, you know engineers to work in pure engineering roles, whether that's uh, working on you know sort of in our data center or in some of the cloud uh, environments that we're starting to move stuff to. We need network engineers, we need cybersecurity engineers. And so as you move down the stack, the level of finance specificity goes down. Um, and so there's quite a range of, of opportunities for people, but obviously finance and, and interest in finance is clearly part of it. When, you know, one uh, an article I wrote a while back uh, received a lot of attention was uh, about the Julia programming language and, you know, I guess just looking at the programming languages that are out there right now, whether with HTML5 or, you know, I've heard some people kick around OCaml, some other kind of new, uh, HTML5 obviously not new, but some of these other new kind of programming languages. Is there anything that you're kind of seeing from a, a trend development where programmers are really trying to get into there, where you are actively trying to appeal to them with a specific uh, programming language? Yeah, I mean, certainly for our, for our research portfolio management um, tech work, Python is, is a very big part of that for us. And obviously, as we'll talk later, um, we've been very active in the Python open source community as well with Pandas. And so a, a lot of engineers that apply to us from college have heard about us because they've been using Pandas in school. And then when they read about where Pandas came from, they think, oh, AQR, we should find out a bit more about them. Um, so, so Python is, is obviously um, very big there. Um, we're seeing a lot more Scala um, you know, on top of Java, so, so Scala's become more, more popular. And then there's just a whole range of visualization um, libraries and tools that we're using. Um, it's been around for a while, but we've been using Tableau a lot of late, and, and the newer versions of Tableau have some really great features on the visualization side. So a lot of our research analysts are able to sort of you know, move off from looking at things in, in two dimensions and really explore data in a, in a much more rich manner. Certainly the battle over young technologists gets a lot of attention because that's kind of what's talked about a lot, about competing with the, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons of the world. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure just as important to you guys is also bringing in the experienced developers, the people with, you know, that have been in the game for a while. How does that recruitment process differ and how does kind of AQR go about that in terms of getting the person that's maybe been in finance, you know, in technology for 10 years or so? Yeah, I mean, we have a very large number of people that join us through um, referrals internally. So we obviously have a lot of experienced people that have worked elsewhere. And, you know, when they enjoy their experience, they, they want to share it with others. And so we do get a lot of people through internal referrals. We obviously recruit a lot of experienced hires also through, you know, recruiting agencies and, and, and executive search firms. And I think there, the, the challenge is obviously quite different from, from hiring someone fresh out of school. Um, obviously, in the case of more experienced hires, people generally at that point in their career have decided that they like finance or they find it interesting and they want to continue, or they have enough domain knowledge that they, they know that that's valuable in the industry and they want to stay there. And, uh, you know, so we've been able to, to recruit a lot of experienced people through those channels. Um, and, and in that case, the sort of questions that we're asking really is sort of what's the mission, where is AQR and its um, evolution as, a, as an overall platform? And I think the answer there is, is very exciting for us because you know, a firm like ours that's grown as much as we have over the last decade in terms of assets, in terms of people, in terms of strategies and the different types of asset classes that we trade. Um, as you guys know, and, and I've heard you discuss in previous podcasts, sort of software is not static. You're, you're constantly refactoring it to 
um, you know, to sort of take advantage and, and be up to date in terms of the changing nature of your business. And so something that you might have designed when you're managing 20 billion of assets under management um, may not work as well when you're managing 200 billion. And so recognizing that you're constantly evolving that platform. And I think right now we're in the middle of a pretty major build out of just upgrading different parts of our system front to back. And when experienced hires come in and, and hear that, hear the excitement um, that, our, that my colleagues have about that, uh, you know, people are very interested. You, you touched on it earlier. Something we want to talk about is open source. You know, a lot of firms in finance like to talk about open source and their love for it. Not many so much are willing to put kind of their money where their mouth is when it comes to contributing back. You know, you mentioned Pandas. You guys obviously have been big contributors to open source. To start, to kind of, we'll tie it in with, you know, what we were talking about before. How does open source play into especially recruiting that younger talent? Because I know I'm such a big part of it, especially as a developer growing up, not that I can speak for from experience because I haven't developed anything, but uh, that, you know, you love going to the open source community, getting, you know, being able to kind of add code and whatnot. How much does it play into the fact that you guys can say on these internships and stuff, listen, you're going to be able to get involved just like you, you were beforehand? Yeah, no, it is a big, it is a very big thing. And I would say certainly a trend I've seen, you know, I'd say 20 years ago, obviously open source wasn't as big uh, and certainly students coming out of school weren't asking as much about it. Um, like I said earlier, uh, Pandas is often how uh, college grads find us in the first place. And so it's, it's, it's very important. And I think that there's definitely um, a sense of the, the, the younger engineers coming out that they're asking questions around, well, you know, what are you doing to give back to the community? And that, and that, that, that sense of giving back, I think, I in the value system of people coming out of school today is much higher than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I think that, that it's, it's an important part. I can't remember who I was speaking with recently, but they were talking about how, you know, a lot of firms that they're trying to get into this open source thing to attract talent and stuff like that. But if you aren't contributing back, then you aren't giving into the ethos of what is open source. And if you don't do that, then you're going to alienate the young, talented developers, even the older ones that want to be part of a contribution and want to see something grow. So I think that that's something that maybe gets lost a lot on a lot of firms that are just kind of getting into the open source realm. It, it's really true. And, and I think something I'm, I'm really grateful for is uh, the culture at AQR uh, is very much about transparency. You know, one of the things that differentiates us from many other firms in our space is that we write academic papers about our strategies. We even make the data that was used to backtest these strategies available on our website. The data library is available for people to download. It's used very heavily in the academic community. And so w when I joined AQR three years ago, um, seeing that culture for me and also un understanding the history of Pandas, um, you know, made me feel very comfortable sort of continuing to push that agenda. And I would say that, you know, to, to, to others out there that want to, you know, contribute back into open source. Um, I think it's really important to be able to understand the culture of the company you're in and whether it's going to be good with that and then work through your legal and compliance departments to make sure you have all the right sort of checks and balances in place. So we have a group that meets on a regular basis that reviews things that we want to push back into the open source community, needs to get legal and compliance sign off before it happens. Um, I'm fortunate to work at a firm where you know, that's something that people are very comfortable doing. Um, that may not be the case everywhere. 
And you know, just in case there are some people listening that aren't as familiar with pandas or don't know at all, why don't you kind of give a little bit of background on what you guys are doing with, with, uh, with that technology? Yeah, I mean, basically it's a data analysis library. So it's, you know, um, sort of a Python package that, that quantitative researchers, analysts, programmers use for just managing data and reading, writing it back to databases, manipulating it, you know, modeling off of it. And it's really used very, very widely across, you know, the uh, financial industry, but particularly in sort of quantitative shops more than anywhere else. What's what's the future for open source, especially, you know, with these big sell-side organizations, these big banks? You mentioned it, legal and compliance is kind of the big hang-up for them. I know from having talked to folks that that's the biggest thing. They want to contribute back, but, you know, they have lawyers kind of, you know, red ink everywhere, you know, unsure of what to... So we see things like the Eclipse Foundation, where you have firms con contributing to a third party and then them contributing to the open source. Is that a sustainable model or is that a band-aid? Is that something that you think going forward will be the only way kind of big banks will be able to contribute? Or do you think there's a way they can directly do it? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the Eclipse Foundation is certainly a good example of a way that perhaps gets, you know, firms with a different risk appetite comfortable with contributing. Um, but, you know, we, we see some of the larger banks, um, I, I was looking at Goldman Sachs recently, and they have a huge open source initiative within Goldman, and, and they talk about it very publicly on their website. So clearly some of the larger firms have figured out ways to get around that. I think it's only a matter of time before more firms realize that, you know, um, you can get comfortable doing that. Um, the things that people are contributing are not secret source, they're not you know, super proprietary parts of their platform. And frankly, as we've experienced with Pandas, once you put it out in the um, open source community, it improves and you've suddenly got, you know, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people contributing to it and making it better. And I think once, you know, firms get comfortable with that notion, uh, I think it's only a matter of time before more are able to do that. Yeah, is that maybe one of the bigger unrealized potentials of open source? People are so worried about the concerns around it and legal and compliance, and then, you know, we talk about the recruiting aspect. But at the end of the day, it's just going to improve the software. Absolutely. I mean, look at Wikipedia, right? I mean, pe <laughs> people used to think that, you know, well, why, why, why would I rely on Wikipedia? It's so easy for someone to to put nonsense on there, but the reality is it's policed by a community of people, largely volunteers, who are really strict about that stuff yeah. and find it and revert back immediately. And, and it works the same way in the open source community. So I, I do think that, you know, the firms that haven't perhaps realized the uh, full sort of benefit of doing that will start to do so. And obviously as the demographic within firms changes as well, they'll just be more like-minded people that are really pushing in this direction. I mean, that's why I source all my stories from Wikipedia. Yeah, exactly. It's such, such a solid source, you know? I wasn't going to say anything, but, uh, you know, now that you mentioned it. Now I know how I can screw with them on commodities. Just start, you know, creating some fake uh, Wikipedia yeah, entries. Right. I'm like Ron Burgundy. Anything yeah, exactly. that shows up on Wikipedia, I'm going to write down. That's got to be <laughs> So looking forward, looking at your company right now, um, the organizational structure, I think one of the interesting things that we've spoken with you in the past about is how the engineers, they sit with the researchers on the desk. Maybe you can delve a little bit into the culture that you're kind of trying to create there. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say just by way of background, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a very interesting debate in the industry, again, for as long as I've been in it. Um, you know, for certain types of functions where the line between engineering and research is really blurry. And so sort of front office quant, um, you know, group is a very good example of that. Um, you know, the question that's been out there is, uh, should those engineers just report directly into the, the research group? 
or should they be part of, part of more of a central technology function? And we've seen both models over the years, and both models have their pros and cons. Um, where we are at AQR today is we have uh, all the engineers in the firm are part of a single you know, engineering organization, and I'm fortunate enough to be the CTO of that organization. Um, but the way it works is in situations where engineers are working really closely with researchers, with, with in risk, in, in, in um, you know, um, portfolio management and in pure research, um, they physically sit with them, they pretty much take their day-to-day -day direction in terms of priorities and features to be worked on from that particular desk or group. Um, but, but obviously, there, there may, there's a number of sort of common uh, core components, whether that's the stack they're developing in, whether that's building reusable components that other research groups can leverage. Um, that comes from more of a central drive of, of architecture. And so we, we, we think we found a really nice balance between the two. Um, where, you know, and the, out, the outcome of that is obviously less wheel reinvention. So when you've got a number of um, sort of different teams working on different strategies or, or different asset classes, there's obviously parts of their platform that are very different. But when you take a step back and you think about, okay, I've got data feeds coming in from, you know, thousands of different data vendors, I need to build feed handlers for them. I need to parse them, persist them, clean them apply identifiers to them. Um, we don't want to see that kind of stuff built 15 different ways for each group. And, and you know, when you think about a small firm growing large, there's always going to be a certain amount of that that happens, right? Because, you know, um, at, at that point in time, when, when you're in a growing business, a lot of decisions are made around time to market. And for time to market, you know, saying, well, I'm going to build this thing and it's going to be generic and work for everybody isn't necessarily what people want at the time. So oftentimes, you know, in, in the first sort of iteration of a technology platform at a firm, you may find a number of things that are done, you know, slightly differently, but they're really the same under the hood. Um, you then get an opportunity to refactor that at some point. And, and I'm very fortunate we're in that phase right now at AQR. And that refactoring allows you to kind of look at the common underlying pieces and, you know, rebuild those or adapt them so that there's a single instance of that. And now on each of the desks, you can draw from a growing library of resources. So it's almost like internal open source. And we really think of it in that way. Um, some of these libraries don't have single owners that they're contributed to by different development teams across the organization. And, and that really allows ultimately a lot more efficiency because you're not wasting time building things that somebody next to you has built. And that's one of the models that I think, again, uh, you know, diff different firms work differently. There are firms on the buy side that are, you know, more sort of eat what you kill type shops where each PM desk is sort of in competition with the others for capital funding and, and, and resources and so on. And in, and, and in those cases, you see a lot less collaboration across those businesses. We're fortunate enough where, you know, the, the, the incentives of, of, of people at AQ are very aligned. And so we want to build reusable components that can be reused and help other strategies have a more efficient way of getting their work done. This might be a stupid question. <laughs> it wouldn't be Probably. the first time yeah, that I've ever asked one. It would sound to me when you have that kind of a structure where they're sitting right on the desk that that can lead toward shadow IT projects. Dan wrote a very good uh, feature uh, looking at that. Is that something that you have to, how do you kind of make sure that as we're sitting there and that the, the 
the um, the detrayer doesn't say, listen, I need this bill, I need this macro built for me. You know, can you go about it? Is, is there kind of any lessons learned as you kind of gone about that process? Yeah, actually, it's a really good question because um, you know, shadow IT is something that that I've seen all throughout my career, and I would say that actually, in the embedded model that I just described. Um, there's a much, a much lower probability of shadow IT than frankly in the centralized model. The main thing that drives shadow IT is when you don't feel like you're getting what you want from your central IT. And so if the, if the people are sitting around you and you're driving what they're doing, then the chances of you wanting to, so the negative thing of shadow IT is that it's often reproducing a solution to a problem that's been solved elsewhere, but perhaps it's tailored specifically for a particular use case. Um, if the engineers are embedded with you, there's a lower probability of that being the case. That said, um, I will say that there's always a certain amount of skunk work stuff <laughs> happening, right? Where, you know, a, a researcher might say to an engineer like, hey, you know, let's try this thing and they don't necessarily want to run it through the gates and get all of the you know appropriate support and funding. And like, look, I've made my career uh, from doing skunk works on the side. Sometimes the best ideas, you know, rather than sort of build a big case and, and take a PowerPoint presentation on the road, you just sort of take an evening or, or a weekend and go code it on the side and bring it back and show it to people. And so we want to maintain a balance between the two. We want to give our engineers enough freedom that they can try things out that may not be exactly what you know people have asked them to do. As long as they still get their day jobs done, um, then we're perfectly willing for people to to play around with that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm all set. You, you, you. Well, and then I would just say the the one other thing I guess to wrap that one up in a bow is you know as firms are maybe considering going down as like a, a smaller hedge uh, hedge fund asset manager that's looking to grow and trying to get more of that collaboration. You've obviously been able to build that culture over you know years, the firm itself. Is there any other uh, maybe lessons learned, maybe some fits and starts from the beginning that you had to kind of learn from that you went about that you think is, okay, if you're gonna consider this, keep these kind of things in mind? Yeah, I mean, look, I think especially when you're uh, migrating from an existing model where the engineers are embedded within the business and they're now moving into a more central function, it definitely pays to be thoughtful about the process by which you make that organizational change. Um, you know, in 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 prior times, I've I've heard people make statements like, uh, "Well, I, I I get paid more because I report directly into the business, and now that I'm going to move into a central engineering or IT function, I feel like it's going to hinder my career growth." And and that's not true. But you have to be willing to let people express that to explain what the career path. Um, options are now that they're part of a larger organization. And I found, at least historically, it's often a myth that, you know, um, an engineer that's directly embedded in the business is going to necessarily do better financially than one that's part of the, you know, overall engineering organization. But sometimes it's just lack of data and, you know, and compensation is anyway something that's a fairly tight-lipped topic and people don't talk publicly about it. And so, um, you know, we've tried to be very transparent in that manner as well and, and really get people on board that, that the shift doesn't mean that, uh, you know, they're suddenly part of a uh, sort of a drudgery central IT, you know, monolith and that they can still be very nimble, very relevant to their business and, and co-located with them even in that model. 
think it's time we should switch now, switch it's gears a little the bit. The best part of the podcast. The best part of the podcast, <laughs> the non-technology part of the podcast. Neil's a, a huge Liverpool fan. I believe, what was it, a couple months ago, you went, you were over at a game at Anfield, is that right? I was fortunate enough to be at Anfield with my mother and a few friends um, to see Liverpool-Arsenal. Uh, we won 3-1, which Great is game. always a nice uh, outcome when you, when you go to the game uh, in person. So we're recording this on the 5th of, of May, so and it's going to go up next week, or when you're listening to it, it's going to go up a week from now. So please forgive us if our, if our predictions are a little wrong. But I think before we get into anything, how Liverpool fan, because you grew up in the, the south of England, or partly in the south of England, right? So how did you become a, a Liverpool fan? Yeah, my, my mother's family is from Widnes, which is not too far out of Liverpool in, in northern England. And my grandfather was a season ticket holder in the COP, which is the you know, one of the stands in Anfield Stadium for over 40 years. I think when I was about four, um, he was visiting us uh, in Milton Keynes, where I grew up north of London, and, uh, and he gave me my first Liverpool jersey. And uh, it's pretty much been religion. Would you have been kicked uh, out of the house if uh, you didn't become, if you became a Man U or Arsenal fan or something like uh, that? I certainly wouldn't have been fed. I would have had to <laughs> fend for myself. Uh, I think they would have kept the roof over my head, but food would have been a different story altogether. Who, who's your all-time favorite before we get into anything? Well, I grew up as a huge Kenny Dalglish fan, um, so it's hard not to, not to be a big Kenny fan. And in fact, just, I think, announced a couple days ago, of uh, the centenary stand at, at Anfield Stadium is being renamed the Kenny Dalglish stand. So uh, uh, that's, a, that's a great honor for him. Uh, so he was a, a fantastic player and a manager and also led Liverpool through a very difficult time um, you know, uh, around the Hillsborough uh, disaster. So mm -hmm. very important man for the city of Liverpool and for the club. Sure, sure. So interesting time because especially, you know, so Chelsea, Tottenham, they kind of are going back and forth. Chelsea, you know, seems to have a, a good stranglehold on it by now you'll have known you know of how Tottenham did against West Ham today on the fifth but kind of more interesting for us is kind of the battle for UEFA qualifying you know obviously top four make it uh both of our teams Neil are in it you know you being a Liverpool fan myself being a City fan right now we're we're good um but you know Man U kind of nipping on our heels and I mean Arsenal's kind of basically out of the five points back uh but a game in hand so you never know so kind of down the stretch here, and you know we'll let Anthony jump in here too, even though he's a, a Juve fan, not even, not even none understanding the best league in the world. Um, like you know, boring Italian soccer. Yeah, exactly, boring <laughs> Italian soccer. What, what are you thinking down down the stretch here? I mean, I guess you know we can we can pencil in Chelsea and Tottenham one and two, but you know three, four, five really up for grabs. What are you thinking here? Yeah, my my prediction actually is the table will remain the way it looks uh, today, which is yeah, I think I think Tottenham will give Chelsea a run for their money. I think it's you know going to be hard for them to actually catch them. Chelsea look look really good. So to Tottenham, I'd love to personally see Tottenham uh, pip Chelsea at the end, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think Liverpool will you know sort of stand their ground in third uh, and City in fourth, um, and and United can uh, can enjoy playing in the Europa League again uh, <laughs> next season. If I'm wrong, by the way, I'm in such trouble. <laughs> I will not hear the end of it. No, I have to agree. United's got a tough, you know, they, I know they play Tottenham down the stretch. And they do. They have a little bit tougher of a schedule compared to the other two. I know Liverpool, you know, United and City have a game in hand on Liverpool, um, which kind of gives them a little bit of a, a benefit. But I just, I, I don't know, United just hasn't really, it's kind of come up a, a dollar short or a dime short every day, it's it seems. time for the Magic to come back. I think that they're going to run, they're going to go beat Arsenal. Arsenal's, you know, shambles right now. 
you have uh, the, the Tottenham game will obviously be the key one, but Tottenham will be, you know, Chelsea will have sealed it up. Manchester United gets the win there, goes beat Southampton, sneaks in there somehow. Let me let me ask you as a as a Liverpool fan, who do you who do you consider a bigger rival, Everton or United? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would say United. Uh, you know, the Everton Derby games are great, but there's always a spirit of um, Liverpool in those games. Mm-hmm. You know, Everton being obviously in Liverpool as well. But with United, it's just pure hatred. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I was um, uh, fortunate enough to be in uh, United Stadium at Old Trafford uh, about two years ago um, with a colleague of mine, actually, Yawa from AQR, who is a huge United fan. Uh, and we sat in a United section. I oh had boy. a Liverpool jersey underneath my my black raincoat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we lost that game. Uh, but the one goal that we scored when I stood up and cheered and then I looked around, uh, <laughs> I realized that that was probably not the right thing to have done. So uh, there's no love lost between the two cities or the two clubs. Funny story about being in the wrong place watching a game. So I'm, I was a City fan. I became a City fan in 20, tw- 2011, 2012 when they kind of ended the whatever it was the 60 or 50 year drought of of EPL titles and uh my last day I was living in England time living in Manchester my last day there a good friend of mine said hey it was City versus United um this was like down the stretch and basically whoever won that was gonna you know take the reins of of you know control of winning the title and he goes let's watch the game at this public like, okay he knows I'm a big city fan and I was wearing luckily I was wearing a jacket but I have my you know Manchester City jersey and I walk in and it could not have been a redder bar there was not a spot on the bar that wasn't red and I walk in watching the game and, the, and kind of I zip my jacket up but you can still kind of see the blue City ends up winning and I'm never forget you know nobody really said anything bad to me I got a couple awkward looks and then as my way as, on my way out um this one, uh, uh, we'll call him a rough-looking gentleman, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a cig in his hand, a pint in his hand, standing outside with a kind of mean mug, looks at me, goes, Sorry, yeah. goes, you goddamn better zip up that jacket and get the, you know, a- a- out of here. So quickly, I ran to my car. I ended up breaking, <laughs> I ended up breaking my door handle, <laughs> trying to open it so quickly <laughs> to get out of there. If you um, haven't met Dan. Dan's not a small guy either. I mean, that's a... yeah, but you know, international rules. You know, you never know what a. Uh, what applies um well, no, yeah, it's, it's, dan was driving a skoda back then, <laughs> so, uh, so you know it, look that that it's funny you say that though i see that now in manhattan i mean there's so many um football pubs in manhattan and now they've reached the point obviously where they're they're specialized by team so jamie carragher's uh, up on 39th street it's a big liverpool so is the 11th street bar in the east village um, and if you wear the wrong jersey in the wrong pub even in manhattan You'll get some uh, yeah. some looks and <laughs> yeah. some comments. So yeah. it, it's kind of crazy how uh, how the Premier League's really you know developed, and obviously NBC showing it live here has been a huge help for the for the sport. Uh, I was just wondering if you wanted to wax poetic about Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> um, how many hours do we have left? Uh, Jurgen is yeah, he's unbelievable. I mean, the spirit that he's brought to the club has been fantastic. Just watching the the um the way he's able to just control the fans um you know when when liverpool's not playing well he will get the stadium to be that 12th man and it's it's an unbelievable uh 
spirit that he brings to the club. He's obviously, uh, this was his first full season. He's improved our place, you know, hopefully, uh, touch wood, to somewhere between third and yeah, fifth. Yeah, you jinx it right now. <laughs> I know, I know. Which the tends Liverpool to faithful. You won't be allowed back again. I, I won't be. It'll be, it'll be yeah, exactly, my, my last trip to Liverpool. So, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're very excited. Um, I think it's very important for us to get in the top four because there's obviously we're, we're missing a few key players in the squad. We had a number of injuries, and, and that's really hurt us. But with the right team, um, you know, we can break our jinx. We've never won the Premier League. Our last win was the year before the Premier League was uh, was founded. So it's been, you know, 27 years uh, in the making now. Um, I think we're due. What, you know, to your point about a lot of these Manhattan, you know, pubs kind of in EPL picking up, it seems to that point even more so Liverpool. I don't know, maybe it's just the people I associate with, but I seem to have know a lot of people that are Liverpool fans that weren't big soccer fans before. Do you get that sense at all, maybe talking to maybe Americans that weren't as popular, and how much do you think Klopp plays into that? Because he's such an eccentric, he's a fun manager to watch. You know, there's the Never Walk Alone, you know, song. Liverpool is not a... It's not, you know, if you say, oh, I'm a United fan, then everyone's like, okay, you don't really know soccer, you know, or I'm a Chelsea fan. But Liverpool's kind of a cool underdog, kind of like the Cubs <laughs> were a couple of years ago, but still very good, you know. Yeah, you get the sense that? I do get that sense, actually. It's funny you bring it up. I, I was chalking it down to sort of the Williamsburg hipster community yeah. Yeah. that <laughs> wants to pick the sort of slightly, you know, not, not the team that has all the money and all the, right. the famous players. Uh, maybe it's a little bit of that, but but I also think that you know if you look sort of age-wise, certainly people that are between sort of their mid-thirties to their you know mid-fifties grew up at a time when Liverpool was the dominant club in Europe and in the and, and in England, um, and so there's obviously a lot of memories of that. But uh, yeah, no, they're they're definitely popular, and um, out in Asia, they're they're huge, and they do a pre-season tour out in Asia every year, and they fill you know massive stadiums. So. They're an amazing club with an amazing history, and um, the 2005 uh, Istanbul uh, Champions League win, where they came back from 3-0 yeah, at halftime against Milan, was just one of the one of the best games, yeah, yeah. certainly one of the best finals in in the history um, of that championship. And so I think you know they've got a lot of spirit, but. Uh, they need to win some trophies as well, so uh, so let's go, Jurgen. <laughs> well, this will be fun. This will be fun to listen back to uh, a week from now when it's all gone <laughs> wrong, or two weeks from now when yeah, it's all gone to hell. He'll never talk to us again. He's <laughs> yeah. like, I've jinxed everything. Yeah. You guys are a bad luck charm. Yeah, no this, yeah. This will be the end of our relationship. Neil's relationship with Waters because we jinxed the uh, Liverpool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thanks so much uh, for hey, joining thank us. Thank you today, for Neil. having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, right. guys. Thanks. Thanks.